Throughout the past few decades, and definitely even longer than that, we have noticed some worrying patterns within anarchist spaces. There are far too many examples of organizations purging members who are sexual abuse victims and working with groups who advocate against gender nonconforming people. We've been seeing an increase in the number of cases where, in particular, anarcho-syndicalist organizations have been engaging in various forms of sabotage against internal working groups they claim to support. Which makes us ask ourselves a lot of questions about what the role of anarcho-syndicalist unions can and should be in our time. In theory, anarcho-syndicalist unions are there for the workforce to fight against capitalism. In practice, there are a lot of internal power struggles in the organizations that, in most cases, end with either huge membership purges or the act of more controlling members silently pushing out and ostracizing people who they claim to have been either too difficult or causing problems. They intentionally, even if quietly, continue to exclude those who are already excluded, and it often results in the disintegration of internal working groups and any related work they had been doing. This brings up an interesting question that, as educators who have knowledge of anarcho-syndicalist unions' historical importance in educating and organizing people, we must ask. If our anarcho-syndicalist unions still fail to recognize many of the axes of oppressions and to actually engage with them, are they in fact truly outdated for our fights in this century, in the middle of a climate crisis and with fascism on the rise again? For today's podcast, we'd like to present a little example of how internal power struggles based on hierarchies in combination with patriarchal and neoliberal values can result in self-sabotaging processes that have weakened anarchism and our capacity to fight for ourselves. We will present the example of the CNT, starting with a short historical introduction connecting it to the foundation of Mujeres Libres, and then to more recent splits and conflicts that have shaped what they are now. Later in this episode, we'll also be talking with Mireya with regards to organizing within anarcho-syndicalist spaces. She first was in the CGT and then in the CNT, and it's her experience with the latter that we intend to focus on. It is also important to recognize that the branches of the CNT are not the only groups who have engaged in behavior and rhetoric that is harmful to the members they claim to support. The CNT is not the first group, nor will it be the last, to positively engage with transphobes and abuse apologists. You can find a number of parallels across many of the anarcho-syndicalist unions in the world, and they are even found within other informal and grassroots anarchist groups that do not focus on labor struggles. We have included links to some examples in the show notes, and we encourage you to engage with them and recognize this pattern for yourselves so that we can work to append this phenomenon. It's first important to note that the history of an organization that has been around as long as the CNT has been and has done so many things throughout that time can be complicated. This is not meant to be a comprehensive history, but it is a short overview that we feel is necessary to create some context for where they are today and how they got there. Labor movements have existed in Europe for centuries, but most of the well-documented ones have taken place since the development of capitalism and throughout the Industrial Revolutions. In the 19th century, and with the emergence of the first European nation-states, the Asociación Internacional de los Trabajadores, or the AIT, had started its work of gathering many different kinds of workers to fight against oppression and exploitation. 
In Spain, organized workers' groups had existed since the 1850s, but it was after contact with comrades from the First International who were influenced by Mikhail Bakunin's thought that these organizations became more connected to each other and more common across the country. In 1870, the Federación Regional Española, or the FRE, was founded as part of the International Working Men's Association, or the IWA. In general, this first regional organization had a range of different political views with regards to socialism. And after several years, the workers realized that the new unions founded at the beginning of the 20th century were seeking neither social nor economic revolution or liberation. Anarchist thought and practices crystallized from the FRE into what is now known as the Confederación Nacional del Trabajo, or what we've been calling the CNT, in 1910, which came about after several episodes of resistance against the Spanish monarchy, the Catholic Church, and capitalist forces. Between 1923 and 1930, under the dictatorship of Miguel Primo de Rivera, the CNT were outlawed. Prima de Rivera's particular form of fascism focused on guaranteeing workers better labor contracts and promoting programs that supported professional and promotional development in order to quell the wave of anger from workers. However, he openly refused to work with those who he claimed were bad workers in organizations associated with them. When he was talking about these supposed bad workers, he was actually referring to anarcho-syndicalists and communists. The dictatorship went so far as to openly outlaw the CNT, even as it worked with the Socialist Party. Primo de Rivera and his dictatorship specifically worked with the Socialists only as far as it would isolate the anarcho-syndicalists, curtail the communists, and benefit his other causes. This included what's called the domestication and nationalization of socialism, attaching it to the state through corporatist policies. Overall, Primo de Rivera's dictatorship was a time of major development of such policies, which was something that was also happening nearby in Italy under Mussolini. Following this period was that of the Second Republic and the Spanish Civil War, taking place throughout the decade of the 1930s. During this time, the CNT was again legalized and able to regroup, becoming a more prominent force throughout Spain, though it functioned primarily in Catalonia. They initially offered support to the Second Republic, with some of the members in the CNT choosing to work within the governmental structures. However, as they found themselves in constant confrontation with Republican forces during successive general strikes, their support for the Republic waned. Throughout this time, workers and unionists faced severe repression, most of which was largely subsidized by industrialists, who ensured the strength of strike-breaking police and military forces by providing them with hundreds of thousands of pesetas. This is the period that the CNT is most well-known for, and it is the one that a lot of people tend to refer back to when talking about them. This particular growth of the CNT's membership took place during an increase in fascist movements across Europe which also included the growing presence of the fascist Nazi forces in Morocco and other parts of North Africa. In fact, workers in several Spanish cities refused to participate in sending arms to the military in Morocco and organized defenses against Franco's forces across Spain. A constant theme for the CNT would be related to the multiple factions that existed within it, and the many different external collaborations they engaged in, particularly if some people were attempting to grab positions of power that would give them access to decision-making processes and resources. 
This would include the ways in which the CNT leadership often excluded women, leading to the foundation of groups like Mujeres Libres, which will be presented later. In the beginning of the 1930s, there was a common belief within the CNT that they could work with and inside of governmental structures to help achieve their goals. As a result, this time is also when it became much easier to recognize the internal conflicts within the CNT that were due to the many different paths that its members wanted to take. Some wanted to remain organized within the union, focusing on building a solid workers' movement. Others went on to become more politically active in the local governments, choosing to either enter parliament or support those who did. For the militants of the FAI and CNT, this participation was later rejected as a result of repression by the coalitions of their rivals, who continually tried to move against them. It's often cited that the street fights that took place in May 1937 across Catalonia between members of the CNT and a coalition of communists and republicans was the start of the more militant members refusing to participate in governmental structures. This would go on until roughly 1939, when the Second Republic dissolved at the completion of the Spanish Civil War. Despite all of the international support to fight the fascists, this sadly ended with their victory and caused bloody persecutions that led to the deaths of many people, including anarchist workers, pushing many more into exile. Because many people were exiled, this led to the creation of other branches of the CNT in places like France, for example, where they continued their anarcho-syndicalist work and supported comrades and their families who were left in Spain to struggle under Francisco Franco's dictatorship. Across Spain, the CNT was once again outlawed, and anything they had was expropriated. Much of what they did was done through clandestine actions or through the organizations of CNT members who were in exile. Because many people were exiled, this led to the creation of other branches of the CNT in places like France, for example, where they continued their anarcho-syndicalist work and supported comrades and their families who were left in Spain to struggle under Francisco Franco's dictatorship. Across Spain, the CNT was once again outlawed and anything they had was expropriated. Much of what they did was done through clandestine actions or through the organizations of CNT members who were in exile, while other members who were still in Spain continued fighting the state through guerrilla actions such as those of the Maquis. Later, when Franco died in 1975, there was a resurgence of the CNT in the midst of a growing neoliberal current. In the new so-called democratic process in Spain, this new government was strongly represented by men who had previously been working with Franco and who developed a constitution that was very much based on the right to private property. This created openings for companies and corporations to once more create committees in working places that claimed to act in ways that supported workers but they were really designed to support management, owners, and the wider capitalist classes while disrupting unionizing efforts. This left the CNT with a very strong sense of responsibility to face these new social democratic conditions, which constantly minimized anarcho-syndicalist possibilities to operate. This, along with other political and economic questions that were being asked, created considerable difficulties for the organization and were the background for the first major split within the CNT. In the period from 1979 to 1989, after the crisis that the Moncloa Pacts created in workers' movements, two separate fronts appeared in the CNT and created an organizational crisis between those who wanted to seek the state's support and those who did not. 
This crisis in the difference of tactics ended in the foundation of the Confederación General del Trabajo, otherwise known as the CGT, which was largely filled with people who wanted to seek support from the state for organization. The CNT was still part of the IWA and the AIT and kept on working with the same anarcho-syndicalist strategies. The situation was stable in the organization until around 2018, when some factions from the CNT in Spain decided to abandon the AIT and join the Confederación Internacional del Trabajo, or the CIT, while others decided to remain as the CNT-AIT. For many outside of Spain, it can be difficult to recognize the slight differences between these two structures, and the number and use of certain acronyms makes it even more complicated. However, the conflicts for some of the comrades both in the CIT and AIT have become largely legal, fighting internal power dynamics with accusations of corruption and embezzlement. In later years, after several membership purges, different CNT branches have also punished women and trans people who wish to keep working against oppression and for the liberation of all. These attempts were done from inside the organization, with women and trans people fighting against the internalized patriarchal structures of the CNT and the persistent power abuse that is commonly leveled against the diversity of anarchist practices in the organization. The CNT once stood as an organization of anti-fascist resistance during the Spanish Civil War, which was in fact an international war between fascist-led nations such as Germany and Italy. The support for these fascist governments also included the Catholic Church and U.S. banks and finance, who chose to aid the fight against international anti-fascist forces. The CNT became an example of a well-organized anarchist organization that, with strong militant participation, put into practice anarchist principles of fighting for freedom and against oppression. Because of their legacy and the many converging events around them, anarchists around the world would go on to hold up the CNT as a positive example of successful anarchist organizing, ignoring the internal struggles that often led to issues that went unaddressed or neglected. The international attention that their struggles garnered also helped in this regard. However, as time goes on, things tend to change. Many people outside of Spain still view the CNT through the lens of what they were historically and very rarely look at the actions they take and the policies they support today. These are the actions that we wish to discuss later. Today, there's a lot of romanticization around Mujeres Libres as an independent anarchist group, focusing largely on their role before and during the Spanish Civil War. The interesting part of this history is that the idolization of Mujeres Libres tends to erase the historical reality behind why the group was founded outside the CNT in the first place. This serves as an example of how, even in anarchist spaces, not knowing the dynamics and backgrounds of our own organizations can limit our analysis of the current situation in anarcho-syndicalist unions and federations around the world. In May 1936, a group of anarchist women founded Mujeres Libres. This was the first autonomous, proletarian, and feminist organization to emerge in Spain and was created with the goal to end, in their words, the triple slavery of women to ignorance, capital, and men. To a group of people claiming to seek the liberation of all, it should have been more obvious that they had to also address the concrete realities of the lives of the women and their subordination at the hands of patriarchal structures and institutions. 
despite the fact that it should have been obvious enough for a revolutionary organization to consider specifically addressing these issues, the dominant sector of the Spanish anarchist movement refused to recognize the specific nature of the oppression that women faced, paying little attention to the issues that affected them. When women would approach the mainstream organizations, they often outright denied the legitimacy of women to wage the fight to overcome such complex oppression. As a result, women found that the only way they could overcome these issues would be to wage a separate women's struggle, creating Mujeres Libres. They were pretty much the only group who actively articulated a perspective that recognized and addressed the uniqueness of women's experiences. In Martha Ecclesburg's essay, Mujeres Libres and the Role of Women in Anarchist Revolution, she highlights the importance of having a separate organization that reflected Mujeres Libres' analysis of women's subordination, saying, quote, First, Mujeres Libres devoted specific attention to the problems that were of particular concern to women. Illiteracy, economic dependence and exploitation, ignorance about health care, child care, and sexuality. Second, they insisted that engagement and struggle requires a changed sense of self, which could be developed by women only if they acted independently of men in an organization designed to protect new self-definitions. Finally, a separate and independent organization was essential to challenge the masculine hierarchy of the CNT and of the anarchist movement as a whole. The organization addressed each of women's triple enslavement, ignorance, economic exploitation, and subordination to men within the family." Unquote. In order to do much of this work, Mujeres Libres established a range of programs. They trained nurses who would go to work in hospitals and replace the nuns who had previously maintained a monopoly on such care. They created educational and hygiene programs in maternity wards, which tried to help women to learn more about their own bodies and their sexuality. It's also worth noting that, in comparison to other contemporary women's organizations in Spain, they were far more engaged with doing political work and creating the systems that they saw as necessary to challenge patriarchal structures and institutions. Most of their contemporaries were the women's auxiliary of various political party organizations, which often prompted women to play supporting roles in politics rather than directly participating themselves. The participation of the women in Mujeres Libres came in many different forms, from direct action and the development of educational programs, to supporting those who further enabled their causes. This doesn't, however, mean that they are always on the right side of history. Like many contemporary organizations elsewhere, Mujeres Libres had strict rules about sex workers and often would force them to quit the trade in order to access any of the resources that could be made available to them. Though not every individual agreed with these policies, they were still commonplace within many of the groups. So with all that in mind, we have to wonder how much we have actually progressed in the last century with regards to the specific form of liberation. The most recent episode of Undeniably Unethical Practices, which directly contradicted what should be considered anarchist principles in CNT-CIT Barcelona, took place on July 15, 2023. On that day, the CNT-CIT Barcelona organized an event called Why Are There So Many Girls Who Don't Want to Become Women? Data Against the Neoliberal Ideology of Health. The reactions were clear, pointing out how this was nothing more than an attack against trans people, and this was not only because of the title, but for several other reasons. One of those reasons was that the CNT-CIT was working with the Feministas de Catalunya for this event. The director of the Feministas is someone who we do not wish to name as we do not want to focus on her, and the issue of transphobia within our organizations is far larger than her. 
However, she's a well-known transphobe and the former vice-rector of the Autonomous University of Barcelona. In addition to that, it is also well known to many that she snitched on members of the CGT back in 2015 to the police during a strike. As she provided their names, they were later arrested and imprisoned just for organizing the workers. During the event this year, on July 15th, the CNT members knew that there would be consequences to this collaboration, and thus engaged the municipal police to place guards outside of the event, preventing protesters from confronting the people attending the transphobic event, and simultaneously angering and confusing others watching from elsewhere in the world. But in the bigger picture, this is just one example of many openly oppressive dynamics going on in many anarchist spaces that result in self-sabotaging processes that are more aligned with neoliberal and fascist practices than with those of anarchists. Though many of these organizations outwardly claim that they still stand for freedom and solidarity through mutual aid and direct action, the same structures, protocols, internal agreements, and interpersonal dynamics continue to support patriarchal and neoliberal oppressive structures and institutions. This sparks a lot of questions about how these organizations can even continue being educational examples and models, prompting us to consider the ways that anarcho-syndicalist unions are proving to be outdated examples of anarchist organization and praxis. To dig into these reflections more, we're joined by a Catalan friend who was previously targeted by the latest purges in CNT-CIT Barcelona. She'll be helping us to answer some of the questions that we had, though these are not the only answers. However, they're just some of the answers that might prove useful to most of us trying to do the work of ensuring that the spaces we're in are actually responsive to the problems that happen within them. We're going to start with, do you think that formal anarchist organizations are compatible with anarchist practices? Well, um, from my personal experience in two anarcho-unions, I have to say that no. But a big no. Uh, before I begin to say why not, I would like to clarify something important. Uh, not, not all people who are active in these organizations share the ideas or behaviors that make them incompatible. I think it's important to point this out. So I believe that we could different, differentiate between those factors related to behavior and those factors that encompass their philosophy, ethics, analysis, and strategy followed in some organizations. And being so, in my opinion, it would be necessary to emphasize two axes that include both blocks of factors. First, the act as if the fact of being anarchist frees us from having power relations and to think that addressing these issues internally in our organizations delay us or separate us from the objective. This is in direct contradiction with the very ethical and ideological basis of anarchists to have as a basic objective to do away with all forms of power. It also contradicts the idea that anarchism is not something aesthetic or theoretical or declarative, but is a dynamic path that is exercised and of which one has to be an example. And the second is the dislocation between the anarchist idea or the anarchist ethics and the practice. One of the anarchist principles is not to oppress, not to exercise power. 
If power relations are not taken into account and are not eliminated, we are neither carrying any new world in our heads, nor are we spreading the idea correctly. We are not creating anything. We are only reproducing the system and its dynamics. If anything distinguishes anarchism, it's precisely the ethics, those red lines that must not be crossed. Without the ethical base in favor of life and in opposition and constant confrontation to power, anarchism does not flourish. Why do I think it's so? I think in this European world, there is a lot of privilege to lose. Little will to, little will to do so, a lot of nostalgia for a past that does not seem to be coming back, and a lot of desire to talk about work, but little desire to work for the common peace. Sometimes it seems to me that the Western revolutionary world is right now a grumpy and closed old man with more <laughs> fear of change and doing the internal work to build this one world is nostalgically naming all time. Uh, the first block of ideas, analysis and strategy. Uh, the anarcho-union is conceived as a space to deal only with labor, mainly in terms of waste labor. So you leave out a lot of people and you structure yourself in such a way that even if you don't want to, many people are left out. This is due to close thinking, but also to a lack of acceptance of the dominant role you have in establishing what is work and what is the right way to organize, even in what is the priority. The partial perspective of the white European person, eminently straight these men, ends up being the measure of all things. This means not only that in these spaces there is a very small number of racialization people, for example, it also means that there will be issues that will be discussed only if it is of interest and in a labor perspective, and there will be pressure to do so. Is it possible to talk about the rights of transparency? No, sometimes yes, but only in labor issues and only in uh, 28th of June. Can I pause you there and just to ask, what is the 28th of June? Is the Manus the Pride Day. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Not to mention um, a growing tendency to demonize the uh, sex worker rights movement, for example, uh, feminism or transfeminism. This tendency becomes violent. People are persecuted or expelled within organizations for actively positioning themselves as a transfeminist, for supporting assaulted people, or for supporting um, sex workers. It's a tendency that is also successful within fascist groups and ideas, but this does not make us reflect. It could be said that there is no holistic anarcho-syndical perspective and that it goes beyond labor discrimination. There is also a lack of proposal and analysis of what work is beyond salaried work. The internal organizational structures of affiliated people are often limited to either factory models or work in the public sector, but they do not adapt to the new realities such as riders, and also do not adapt to um, realities, uh, not, uh, nor to long-standing realities such as domestic employees, temporary farm workers, or other realities. 
These realities are realities of racialized people, migrants, precarious people who currently participate in these unions. Therefore, by omission and by structure, we collaborate in structural, structural oppressions and power dynamics since they end up being white, bureaucratized, hyper-structured spaces and in which it's even annoying to open this conversation and even more so to find real solutions about it beyond regretting. If on the one hand, there is no apparent desire to be a listed union as the Cinity wanted to be in the last century, on the other hand, new proposals that are not based solely on the world of work are fought furiously using the principles of the first anarchies as a dogma. Obviously, taking phrases or ideas out of context, because if the internal ethics of anarchy is analyzed, the fight against current grassroots feminist, transfeminines, the colonial proposal, and animalins would not make any sense. One of the main ideas of anarchism is that this freedom is not something for a few, it's not something selfish. It's assumed that until we are free, we are all free, anarchists will be continue fighting and positioning itself on the right side for principles. But currently, it's decided in a small, masculinized assemblies, full of people who have been in positions for a long time, without racialized people, which struggles are priority, which are core, which are first class, and which are second. They do not function as a catalyst of struggles, which would be the one of the philosophies on which an anarcho-syndicate should be based. Sometimes they pretend to be a vanguard, ignoring the agents of the struggle themselves. But other times they simply close themselves to allying themselves with other non-labor struggles because they consider them postmodern or bourgeois, like feminist and feminist, or sectoral, like the struggles about ecosystem. Mm -hmm. This leads to authentic cannibal fights within the union. As well as disinterest and lack of reaction to what is not considered the main thing, this, of course, leads to an, an encourage external power struggles. There is a tendency towards bureaucratization and makes the structure, that makes the structures, protocols, the statutes, and norms increasingly extensive and twisted. It often works slowly, and the struggles are conditioned to the bureaucratic calendar. Furthermore, the bureaucracy to deal with cases of aggression, if it exists, make the processes unpleasant, long and full of traps. This bureaucratization also has to do with the way of facing labor struggles. The more adapted the way of fighting is to the system, which it is, the more bureaucracy you will have to go through. Added to this is the tendency to debate competitively and power struggles. These entrenched dynamics cause any debate to be limited to a war between two teams or two posters, even if they support attack companies or not, depending on which team they have supported. Block of behaviors and relationships. Power relationships and dynamics occur for various reasons sex, gender, class, age. Faced with this, there is a um, Daniel and even people who point out such attitudes, denounce them, or try to address them and question. 
the structure does not make it easy for these issues to be addressed, since it is made to deal with labor issues almost exclusively. And then they are addressed, attitudes and practice generally do not change. The conversation is taken to the field of protocols where there is lack. Corporate teams is put into practice in the face of this. There is almost no self-criticism, and in many cases, people who report attacks are persecuted, questioned, and forced to leave. These dynamics are externalized to the entire movement. The positions, when there is some aggression or behavior indicated, are often scarce. And many times, both the attacks and the collective dynamics are allowed to pass, also turning a deep ear to the proposals of collectives, collective management of such behaviors and situations. In the end, minds do not change. We appeal to structures that could be modified, but mysteriously never can. But people can change the structures. It's a great contradiction as a collective as a, and as individuals to put one's own structures as dogma that cannot be moved. We know that the structures, statutes or protocols can be designed, transformed and improved. If not, could we call ourselves anarchists? If the way of functioning is not changed to improve, to avoid aggressions or to be a union for everyone, it's because of fear, laziness or not waiting to let go of some kind of power, privilege or reason. On the other hand, and in the same sense, if corporate teams is not stopped, or the fact of looking the other way in the face of aggression or questionable attitudes, or questioning the people who point or the norms, as an organization and as individuals, how will we be able to change the dynamics, structures, ours, and those of powers? Okay, as you were going through that, it's just reminding me of so much that I have had to deal with in my local um, anarcho-syndicalist unions, um, both in dealing with one that is in my city and one that's just across the border, <laughs> because they're under two different um, organizations. And I was very much like, just not, no one can see it, but I was just nodding along going like, yes, <laughs> this is exactly what I have been also seeing, um, especially when I was, trying to talk to them about my the, the last school I worked in and they kept telling me well everything needs to already have a published source so that way we can actually trust you and you're like but no one else is talking about this place because you've never talked to us <laughs> so yeah as you were saying that I was just going like, yeah <laughs> just nodding the whole time like yes <laughs> All right, so with that in mind, like all of that, how do you think we can remove these hierarchies um, to prevent interpersonal abuse or oppression, like in specifically anarchist spaces and definitely the anarcho-syndicalist union? Uh, the issue of abuse must be given the same importance as other issues such as labor, self-defense or repression. And we must talk about power dynamics and hierarchy in terms of examples and specific cases that happen to us, just as we would do in case of uh, workplace harassment, for example. For this to happen, we must work on several aspects. 
training and above all continued conversation about power relationships, the most comfortable spaces possible where you can express, but also confront and confront are crucial. We continue to understand that confronting, talking about conflicts, conflicting are annoying, unnecessary issues that have no place in a large organization. This is how an organization that, di that directs attention where it wants to be understood and fostered, that silences the issues it wants to silence, that produces disciplined militants, produces, it does not create, it does not catalyze, it does not potentiate, it is not the germ of transformation. Okay, let's turn this around. Promote self-defense as training and pedagogy, uh, not only as a um, physical training, but also as an emotional, mental, individual and collective training in the face of abuse and aggression. Acting through direct action is pedagogy, not just idealism. We know that self-defense is a part of the philosophy of direct action. And this is basically all that those who suffer oppression do to defend themselves. But self-defense and direct action also means creating new conditions, not just responding to attacks, even create spacious spaces for the abolition of power. Let us understand, exercise, and encourage self-defense from that point of view, being active, creative agents. Uh, we also have to work on Focus, individual and collective responsibility for abuses are the key to, to two things. That the matter is talked about with a desire to repair and improve, and that they occur less and less. Accountability is key at the individual level. Without it, there is no change, only theater. But what about collective accountability? Strong communities are those that do not let an aggression pass of whatever kind, no abuse. Strong communities are those that do not hide out of fear in excuses, corporatives, omissions. They talk, converse cooperatively, look for tools, use them, improve them if it's necessary. Uh, you have to be able to talk about trauma, victimization, revictimization, vulnerability of the positions where we are each, of trauma and inheritance, even ancestral and collective trauma. And of course, what is complicit with the capitalist patriarchal system, unwanted identified, change attitudes. It takes a job, yes, no one said it was easy. We must think precisely about creating a spaces of accompaniment. And if it's possible, empower them until it was uh, a constant practice and attitude. How to do it? That depends on each organization and each place. I'm not friends of recipes, but I'm friend of red lines. I know perfectly well that the debate about which tools are punitivist and which tools are not has long been open. I am not going to go on too long because it's a profound debate, but I will say that it should be possible to analyze the issue of aggression and abuse based on sex, gender, orientation, as we would do in the case, for example, with class aggressions and abuses. That is quite a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> See. <laughs> There's a lot of space that we have to actually kind of work on, and these conversations are also constantly going on, like everywhere, <laughs> at, at least among like more of the people who feel more marginalized 
by these groups who are kind of left to the side. Because <laughs> I, I know I've been watching this take place way more than I feel happy with, personally. <laughs> I wish it was decreasing, but it feels like it's increasing more and more, like every week. <laughs> Okay, so having talked about that, can you tell me some of the examples of abuses that have taken place, um, particularly with regards to things like power or position or even just like like a person's identity <clears throat> and how they often might use these things kind of in order to hold those within the CNT? Um, moral harassment first. Uh, colleagues have been harassed for um, wanting to debate transfeminism, for having positions on feminism, sex work, or other issues on their personal social networks. Uh, has also threatened himself for these same reasons, accusing several people of wanting to break unionism. It has been said that posting female genital anatomy for educational purposes on one of the human networks is breaking anarcho-syndicalism. <laughs> In the assemblies, uh, there were threats, yelling, and hitting the furniture when topics such as sex work came up while affiliated sex workers were also present. Radical feminism, transfeminism, masculinities, internal dynamics of the assembly, and such violent attitudes were justified by saying that it is normal for exploited workers to scream at one another when there are disagreements. Surrealism. No. The existence <laughs> of the gender secretariat has been omitted from the people who joined, considering it bourgeois separatism. The members of the gender secretariat were prohibited from commenting on new members of union sections that attend the meetings of the secretariat. People have been threatened with expulsions and expelled for supporting people attacked by other union members and for spreading their experiences with internal violence on their personal networks. There has been physical and verbal violence, cases of sexist violence, sexual violence, and other violences. There are also power dynamics due to seniority or knowledge of the union's statutes. A lot of power is often given to people who have been in office for a long time, who know by heart statutes that they refuse to change, or who have a lot of academic knowledge. And these people will this power, of course. Another mechanism that is often set in motion is to make gaslighting, even in assemblies. Boycott initiatives that are designed to analyze assembly dynamics manipulate, lie directly. It seems that we are in a parliament or political party instead of an anarcho-syndicalist union. Again, I'm just nodding along with this because I am seeing so many of these things in places that I've worked in, particularly even by people outside of the situation. So like where you have an aggressor and their victim and people on the outside are sitting there supporting the aggressor because um, like they have done so much work or they have so much knowledge. <laughs> so yeah, like I, I definitely am kind of nodding along with this. Like, yeah, I'm seeing this not just in Spain, outside. 
It's everywhere. All right. So how do you think that we can work with these personal and collective accountabilities in order to deconstruct our own prejudices? Well, we have to start listening to understand and reflect, not to answer and refute. Uh, when I say that European revolutionary movement sometimes seems like a grumpy old man with fear, I mean that I think we will, will still believe that we are the cradle of civilization and revolutions or culture. And this is a historical lie that we have swallowed because things were going well for us. And we have to stop being arrogant. What racialized colleagues or sex workers tell us, even when cis women say similar things to cis men, constantly questioning and listening, what feels so bad in the meeting shares. This is one of the essences of anarchist practices. We must reread the ethical principles, not the instructions, not the dates, the philosophy, that holistic metaphysics, and review if we are really there or are acting within the systemic parameters, even if it hurts us. And from that pain, uh, we have to know how to make something that contributes, not that turns into forger rates at whoever it targets. We must ask ourselves many questions such as why we need to be told how to do things, why we look for answers in totally different situations, and why they were also born without fully analyzing all the oppressions that exist. Let's not underestimate ourselves so much. We have so much creativity to create a new world that is precisely what makes Paul scary. We have a lot of literature on collective management of aggression and abuse. We know how restorative justice experiences and reparation processes have gone. We know the weak points that this option has. We know what we need. We have current examples of management and prevention and how change is encouraged. This is promoted collectively, creating non-mixed safe spaces for everyone, also for those who have to ask themselves questions. It's encouraged by facing its case with flexibility. There are several tools that can be used, such as repair and training, self-defense, temporary expulsion, permanent expulsion, having some protocol, not following a protocol. Why don't we create a toolbox so that everyone can choose the one they need. Every time you choose a tool, you create another way of functioning. And yes, pedagogy is needed to get rid of prejudices, but to take responsibility, the first thing you need is the will. I think this question is also somewhat uh, answered in the answer to one of the previous questions. We have to think that fighting against the system has to involve fighting against the system that we carry inside and that and the one that is uh, on our spaces. And if it means dismantling our spaces to assemble them in another way, so be it. The idea is more important than an acronym. In addition, fighting against the internal system means taking action, doing, and it costs us too much. Yep, again. <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking about some of these things, like being able to create those new tools because so many people still rely upon um, what we've grown up with. Like, okay, so in an anarchist society, how can we do this? Like, it's our favorite question that I think every single anarchist gets 
way more than we want. <laughs> because even anarchists have also kept, like, they have not killed the cop in their head. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I'm seeing that same thing where they're using the same tools and not recognizing that we can use something else. We can do it. <laughs> yeah, we can do something creative and new. We don't have to do the same thing all the time. <laughs> It's boring. <laughs> Seriously. All right. So having said all of that, um, what do you think the role of anarcho-syndicalists is in this kind of, um, we call it a critical period of history, but I feel like everyone always thinks the period of history they live through is a critical period. <laughs> but it's like, what do you think the role of anarcho-syndicalists is in this period of history um, with increasing fascism and also in the midst of this kind of ecological crisis or climate catastrophe? Well, rethinking why some of his speeches are so similar to those of the far right would be a good start. Uh, for example, about transfeminism well, uh, or such workers. And then, once the reflection is done, think about uh, what proposal they have as anarchists and as anarcho-syndicalists to all this. Not just what they are against, what they propose, what they would do, how they would change it. That's the hard part. Rethink why they are still linked to their own structures. Why do they sometimes complain about them? How slow they go? How little they include all people. Why do they themselves grant their autonomy, their freedom, their ability to create and transform? They must redo much of their speech and their actions uh, regarding issues such as the ecological crisis, the colonial or feminist proposals. But before that, they have to review what their global and systemic vision is about it. As long as you see these struggles as sectoral or external, it will not work. Perhaps I'm focusing too much on the fact that thinking has to be the change, to bring a gain from the basic ethics and philosophy of anarchism with fewer receipts, rigid structures and dogmas. And I am not giving practical organizational proposals, but I really think that if there is not a new look and another thought from another position, any practical proposal will be born wrong. Mm -hmm. It should be easier to be able to look at the state of things in the world from the small and exclusive perspective of what is happening in little Europe and expand the wise, even return to a complex, holistic and complete vision. When we focus on making our action the resolution of specific conflicts in the way that the system allows us, with a broader action and in an organization that is restricted and closer to many people, it is almost leading a tragedy. Either you end up very well adapted, or you end up stopping actions, or you end up disappearing. But you do not disappear because you are you have already fulfilled your task of liberation. You simply disappear. Here we think we are big, but we're small. We have grown up crushing many. We should learn more and reference each other less. Thus, the aforementioned processes would surely be simple, simpler. We must get rid of the tendency to make statements only against, for example, against ecofastings. 
if there are statements on the matter and go further and give proposals for the future. Here, it would be necessary to explain very clearly what free federation and self-management means and what to propose so that they are real, not nostalgic, and that they provide social environmental alternative resource users, habits, thinking, economic organization, if you want to say. But if these alternatives are given, let it be to have the will to apply them externally and internally. So here comes another obstacle to overcome and we return to the mindset. Do we really want to apply all this? Or are we more comfortable writing manifestos and nothing more? If it is considered that all this is too much or too slow or too long, then it can also make way for other people, alternative proposal that does not come directly from anarcho-syndicalists, but perhaps returning to having a role as a simple catalyst for proposal against the system is not so bad. Although this means losing something that should be never have been had, shares of power. No, I, I agree. We, we are definitely very comfortable, particularly in Europe and the Anglosphere, so basically the English-speaking countries, just writing manifestos all the time <laughs> and kind of waiting around for people to help. <laughs> We're writers. Yeah. We're very prolific writers, and then occasionally we do something. <laughs> And I can't say that I'm not entirely guilty of that, but it, is, it can be quite hard if you feel very pushed out and segregated from these spaces, which is part of why I, um, I kind of identify with so much of what you've said is because it's just been so difficult to find those spaces and to feel safe in them. <laughs> it's more difficult. Is there anything else that you might want to talk about, or are we good? We'll talk about the tragedy of anarcho-syndicalism. <laughs> that sounds like a good title. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to thank you for sharing all of this with us. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> We'd like to thank Mireya for joining us and sharing her perspectives on how we can potentially make our organizing spaces, particularly in our syndicalist unions, more able to engage in dismantling the oppressive structures that still remain within them. Clearly, it's going to be a lot of work to unlearn many of the harmful beliefs and behaviors that have been ingrained into many of us courtesy of the world we live in. But this is entirely necessary in order to build spaces that actually care about those who participate in them and exist around them. We cannot continue to have outdated definitions of what qualifies as work and who can be protected by our unions versus those who cannot. Constantly throwing away potential alliances with people who do actually hold close values, all because they're the wrong kind of person or they hold the wrong kind of job. This often targets, as Mireya discussed, people who are already marginalized by society, especially undocumented migrants, racialized people, queer people, and any intersection of those and other identities. And we most certainly cannot entertain any possibility of working with organizations and individuals who perpetuate any form of bigotry. It should be clear that, in the instance of the CNT, they should not be working with transphobic organizations. This is a line they should never cross, and yet they have. Though, as has been said multiple times, they're not alone. We see and experience this in organizations across the planet. We hope that this interview has been helpful, but we really want people to continue paying attention to the varying CNT branches and upcoming actions. 
There have been calls to defederate the CNT-CIT Barcelona over the aforementioned transphobic event with the Feministas de Catalunya, where they asked for cops to protect them. And it's likely that more actions will be taking place in the future. So thanks for listening and keep an eye out. This podcast is a group work by the Anarchist Pedagogies Collective. This episode has been hosted by me, Nicole, with editing done by Yotam. Sonia helped during the interview with Bridging the Language Barrier by doing behind-the-scenes translations between Catalan and English when necessary. If you'd like to learn more about us, feel free to head to our website at anarchistpedagogies.net where you can find all of our information. <laughs>